We will attempt, I said this last week, but we're really going to attempt this week to finish the book of Deuteronomy. And that will mean covering three chapters. We'll do it. Because I'm not going to go in depth on those three chapters. But Moses has been instructed by God to write a song. And he's told this in the last verse of chapter 31. If we put things or thoughts to music or song, many times that helps us to remember. I attended a church service with a good friend of mine years ago, and honestly, he could not sing. He could not carry a note. He made a joyful, loud noise. And we weren't at a Calvary. We were at a neighboring church. And during one of the songs, this lady that was sitting in front of us turns to my friend and asks him not to sing. I busted up. <laughs> and I had to say amen to the lady. Amen. Hush, man. <laughs> But uh, Moses has been instructed, write a song. But Moses realizes that perhaps he doesn't have the best voice, so he speaks the words of a song. Uh, perhaps Moses uh, wants it to be good worship and not a disruptive type of worship. But let me draw you attention to chapter 32 this song of Moses. We won't go through the complete song, but I want us to look at verses 3 and 4, and we'll go from there. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Think... If the Lord told you to write a song, how would you describe God? How would you describe his divine attributes? We would certainly speak of grace and mercy received via the cross of Christ. But Moses is having to write pre-cross. He's having to write before Jesus goes to the cross. And Moses... He does a good job, though. He, he says, our God, he is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Now, that's a pretty good description. Some of the things that we desire out of our God is that he be constant, that he be solid, that he be trustworthy. For our God is the foundation that we build our life upon. You know, we all hear the vain philosophies of man, and no matter how clever those or profound those philosophies are, they're only philosophies. Our God, however, is the rock he is solid. There is no variation in him. 
We have a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and update. He's constant. When Moses declares God's work is perfect, consider what must go through the data bank in Moses' mind. He has been the leader of Israel 40 years. He brought them out of Egypt. He saw all the miracles that were done before Pharaoh. And Moses has, shown, has been shown by God the strength of himself. God delivered Israel. And Moses knew it wasn't him that did it. It was God. And God's work is perfect in the lives of the Israelis. And it's perfect in you and I. Think what God had to do to bring you to the point of salvation. We all have a miracle story there. Then Moses speaks of injustice. He says God is just with no injustice. You can't bribe God. He can't be bought off. God is always honest with us. He tells us the truth about ourselves, about himself, and about others. And this declaration comes from Moses and understand that Moses is on short term right now of life itself. Moses has been told by God, you're about to die. A death sentence by God, if you will. And Moses is saying, I misrepresented God. And there's a penalty to pay for that. A severe penalty but misrepresenting God is also a severe sin. But we hear Moses declare, even with the death sentence upon his life, God is without injustice. He's fair. He's just. Moses is saying, I fully deserve the fate that is coming upon me. I deserve it. And Moses has no complaint or grievance against God because he's about to die and not go into the promised land. And by the way, no created being has a gripe against the just God. Now, some people do complain against God when life doesn't go their way. But uh, in Proverbs we read, Can the pot say to the potter, why did you make me this way? Well, it can't. God has made you. He's made me. He created us for himself. And God is working in your life and in my life and every life that calls him Lord. He's working in that life. And God has given you the grace. How? he created you he has given you the grace the capacity to deal with the life that you've been given and we see some people that are what we would call uh, handicapped or underprivileged and we say well how do they deal with it God has given them grace to deal with it in his goodness he's given them that grace even Job, in all his troubles and all his uh, 
calamities that came upon him, he said, naked I came into the world. And by the way, that's the way I'm going out. Naked I go out. Job understood that as a created being, it was better for him not to complain about his creator. So Job remained silent to his credit. But let's look at verses 16 through 18 of chapter 32. And uh, I'll read them. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful, and you have forgotten the God who fathered you. Moses goes on to describe how Israel will provoke God to jealousy and anger, and how Israel will even stoop to the lowest depths to sacrifice to demons. And it says, and Israel will forget the God who fathered them. I find in these verses a striking similarity, whatever that word is, similarity, similarity, there we go, I got it. (laughs) In, In Israel, as they go into the promised land, and in America today, we as a nation as a rule, have forsaken our God, the living God that our nation was really built upon. And for many Americans, and you've discovered this as well as I, Christianity is a religion. It is not a personal belief or faith. It's just a a label. Some of the things that people do and proclaim is not even near what true Christianity is is about, yet they call themselves a Christian. As a Christian, as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, we are not allowed to make up the tenets of the faith. They've already been made for us by God himself. We have God's word. We have the Bible, and especially the New Testament, which gives us the doctrine of Christ. But if you've looked around like I have, we see that the scriptures, the Bible, is under attack today. But it's been under attack in the past, too. You can go to one of the book, big bookstores that we have in town, and you will actually need a road map just to help you find a good, solid Bible. There's so many translations. There's so many versions out there. We use the King, New King James Version here, and I find it has modern language, which I appreciate, but it's a solid, pure translation also. So that's why we use the King James, New King James. But over the centuries past, the Bible has been attacked. It has its enemies. And let me mention just a couple of those enemies. Antiochus. He was the fourth Syrian ruler, and he captured Jerusalem in 168 B.C. He declared, let me read a quote from him, 
the books of the law, speaking of the scripture, that are found, tear them to pieces and burn them with fire. Anyone found possessing the books of the covenant or anyone who adheres to the law is condemned to death by decree of the king. Antichagus says, I'm going to kill you if you even possess the scriptures. Antichagus, he was a vile and evil king, but he failed in his attempts to destroy the scriptures. And then we come to the Roman emperor, Diocletian, and he started ruling in 303 A.D., and he ordered the destruction of all Christian churches. This is 303. The burning of all Christian scriptures. The civil liberties of profession Christians revoked. Diocletian was convinced he had wiped out Christianity, and he ordered an image to be struck in metal, carved into metal, and this is what it read. The Christian religion is destroyed and the worships of the gods restored. And when he says gods, he means the mythical Greek gods. He says, I've destroyed Christianity. But immediately, the next emperor of Rome was Constantine. And you may know your church history a little. And Constantine, he restored the scriptures and declared the Roman Empire is Christian. The next leader. Scripture has survived because it's God's word, and he will not allow it to die. It is the anchor, the base of the Christian faith. And as this song of Moses' progresses, God declares who he is and what he will do. And that's in verse 39. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. That's an inclusive statement. God proclaims his sovereignty there. There's no God besides me. Now the critics of Scripture have an argument, and it's that you're not a credible witness if you witness of yourself. So, turn with me to John, and we'll read a little there. But Jesus, he is very near going to the cross, and he wants to teach his disciples a very pertinent lesson. So let's read John 14, 7 through 11. Jesus declaring, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. 
or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. In verse 6 that preceded this uh, passage we just read, Jesus declared, no one comes to the Father except through me. But Philip, a disciple, a follower of Christ, he's got a request. Lord, teacher, rabbi, and those are good titles, but it's not calling Jesus God. Show us the Father, and that is sufficient. Philip is actually saying, Jesus, allow us to look upon God the Father, and that will be all the proof that we need. Now allow me to paraphrase. Philip, wake up spiritually is what Jesus is saying to him. You're calling me teacher, and you're calling me Lord, yet you do not know me. Philip's slowness, dullness of mind is an offense to Jesus. Philip, wake up spiritually. I wonder how often the Lord says that to me. <laughs> wake up, Don. I'm trying to talk to you. And we hear Jesus say, Philip, how can you say Show us the Father. Philip is being openly chastised by Jesus for his question. But I think the rest of the disciples are glad Philip asked. I think they wanted to see the Father also, and that would be sufficient. It's like being in algebra class. Maybe math wasn't your best subject. The teacher goes over some difficult equation, and he's very diligent to do so. And then he asks, are there any questions? And I can remember waiting. Somebody raise your hand and ask a question, because I do not understand what he just talked about. And I am grateful for that person that will ask a question. And don't you know Peter was grateful that Peter asked, or that Philip asked, show us the Father. I think Peter was happy with that. In verse 10 there, try to put yourself in the place of Philip in Jesus' question. Don, do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? As Christians, sometimes, and I've done this in my own life, I have relegated the Godhead to my pecking order, putting God the Father above Jesus and the Holy Spirit, when in fact Jesus and the Holy Spirit are equal to the Father. And that has been a problem in my own little mind, in my own little world. But we don't have any problem believing that Jesus is our Savior in our minds, sometimes we just have them in a little lesser uh, authority, a little lesser divinity. But don't dare put Jesus in a lesser category than the Father. Jesus is God. Be solid on that. 
you have probably experienced, as I have, you can speak about God all day long in conversation, and nobody is challenged or offended. Mention Jesus, and it's like an eruption goes off. All of a sudden, people go, oh, what? Uh, Dabo Sweeney. Do you know who Dabo Sweeney is? He's the coach of Clemson. <laughs> After their uh, victory over uh, Oklahoma, he was very excited. And Dabo is giving God the credit. And he goes on, and he must have said it in his interview four or five times, and I appreciate that he gave God the glory for their victory. But I would have felt better if he would have said Jesus just one time. But he didn't. So God can be anything you make God out to be, but Jesus narrows it down. It brings it down. It's right there. It's in your face. Jesus is God. And why not say it? The conversation that we have with others about God can be very sensitive. And it gets real sensitive as soon as you bring Jesus into the picture. I had a Muslim man tell me the virtues of Jesus when he discovered I was a Christian. And he was trying to appear open-minded and that we were really kind of fellow believers and that, you know... And I, I, I just said, uh, do you consider Jesus as God? No. I said, there's the difference. <laughs> you just hit the difference between your religion and our religion. Because I believe Jesus is God. There's the separation. Jesus is God. All the major religions of the world, they have their own opinion about God, the Muslims, the Hindu, the Buddhists, whatever. Mention the name of Jesus and him being God, and you will get an emotion out of people like you've never dreamed of. Because they can't reconcile that sometimes. Even Philip and the other disciples are in disbelief that God himself is there among them. God himself is their teacher. And God is Jesus. And they're having trouble believing that. But then we have Jesus, and he throws out what I call the clincher. He says, Philip and other disciples, if you can't believe my words... Then believe in me for the works themselves. Now consider for a moment the works of Jesus. What have the disciples seen Jesus do on a daily basis? They've seen Jesus heal the sick, the lame. They've seen him open blind eyes and deaf ears. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him turn water into wine. They've seen him feed 5,000 from a little boy's lunch. They've seen him cleanse lepers. They've seen him forgive sins and then heal the paralytic. 
And on and on goes the miracles of Jesus. And he says to him, remember some of these miracles, my disciples. And then Jesus says in verse 12, believe in me and you will do the same works that you've seen me do. Wow. You can do the very works I do because I am in you, disciples. Okay. That's what for the disciples. Now turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, and we'll read verse 39. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill, I make alive, I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Moses, the miracle worker of God, He's seen God kill. He's seen God make alive. He's seen God wound and he's seen God heal. And then he's hearing God say, whatever I determine to do, nobody can deliver from my hand. Just remember Pharaoh, Moses. Just remember what you've seen me do. And Moses, to his credit, was a great leader of Israel. Give them the law through the hand of God, of course. But I want us to read the last chapter of Deuteronomy. It's only 12 verses. We're going to read the the whole chapter. But this chapter concludes, it's kind of like Moses' epithet, the servant of of God. So let's read the last chapter of Deuteronomy. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all of Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south, the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your own eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of God, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of God. And God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, For Moses had laid his hands on him, so the children of Israel heeded him, and he did as the Lord has commanded Moses. But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, before Pharaoh, before all his servants, in all his land, And by all that mighty power and the great terror which Moses performed 
in the sight of all of Israel. What a thing to be written about you. And this was this last chapter, Moses probably didn't write. It was probably Joshua that wrote this last chapter of Deuteronomy. And this concludes our trip through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And we see Moses, the great leader of Israel, the servant of God. And then we only have one other visitation of Moses, and that's on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he and Elijah appear with Jesus and the disciples, Peter, James, and John, are allowed to see it. And thus we end the first five books of the Bible. We'll start in Joshua next week. General Joshua. And so uh, it's been a good trip. Let me get you to stand and we'll, we'll close with prayer.